After over 2,000 years, that last gentleman says. What do you think of the Bible? Our text this morning comes from Psalm 119, verse 89. You'll find it on the back of your sermon outline in your program. If you take that and look at it, it's a great verse to lay up in your own mind. King David says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. So far the reading of God's word. My earliest recollection of the Bible as a child is this one. (laughs) You've seen Bibles like this. This is one of those old family Bibles that sat on a table or on a shelf. And I remember as a child sort of being overwhelmed by its magnitude, but I would take it down sometimes, and in this family Bible... There were some great works of art. Ever see some of the old paintings? Sometimes they were in. The Tower of Babel fascinated me. Or, or J.L. driving the, tent, the, the stake through the, tent, uh, through the guy's skull. Or David and Goliath. Or the pictures of Jesus hanging on the cross, terribly distressing. Or Christ walking out of the tomb alive. That was my earliest recollection of the Bible. But I never read it. By the time I was a senior in high school, even as I went off to college as a young man, I think if you were to use a phrase to describe me, it would be fair to say that I was biblically illiterate, even as a young man. And it wasn't until I came to Christ and a friend gave me a Bible and a yellow highlighter and he said, go at it, that there was that time in my life with virgin eyes pouring through the Scriptures. And it was such a joy. Now, all of us are on our own path regarding the Bible. And some of you grew up in a home where you sat on your father's lap and he read the Scripture to you, while others of you are just beginning your own journey of exploring what the Bible teaches. But wherever you are in your journey, this is a wonderful message for us to consider today, this little verse. It says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. In the video that we watched, it was fascinating. And I think all these videos of the man on the street have been illuminating for us. Sometimes we get in a little Christian ghetto and we forget the, the, the strange ways that people look at, at the articles of our faith. And so as they talked about the Bible, some people said, well, the Bible is reliable. Other people said, well, it's a storybook, you know. Like the, he said, like the kind of book you can buy in the library. I don't think he's been to the library <laughs> in a long time. What do you think? What do your family members, your colleagues at work, the other kids at the school you attend, what do they think about the Bible? And how many of them would have to admit that they, like I was, 
are biblically illiterate. Oh, sure, people have opinions about the Bible. I'll tell you, when I fly on airplanes and I get into conversations with people, I once sat with the vice president of the American Psychiatric Association, a brilliant gentleman, brilliant. He was fascinated as I discussed our church with him and the way people's lives are being changed. And then I said to him, I said, you look like a pretty educated man. Have you read a lot of books? And he said, I've read more books than a man ought to be allowed to read. And then I said to him, as a leader in the helping professions, have you ever read the New Testament? And predictably, he said, no, I never have. Isn't that interesting? What is the Bible? Well, first, let me just describe it as a book. The Bible is this beautiful collection of books that tells this marvelous story, 66 different books written from 1500 B.C. all the way to maybe up to 100 A.D. by 40 different authors in three different languages. And the first 39 books that are basically the first three quarters of the Bible are called the Old Testament. And there we have the law of Moses. We have the record of creation and the fall of man and God's intention to redeem the world and He initiates redemption in the world through His chosen people, the people Israel. And He's going to bring His Messiah through Israel and through them to bless the whole earth. The second 27 books, the last one quarter, are called the the New Testament. And this is the document that reveals to us the life and ministry of Jesus Christ and reveal God's plan to invade this world with His kingdom and to bring His salvation. What are the Scriptures? What is the Bible? The Bible are the, is, are, yes, it's 66 books, but it is a whole. It is the Word of God. And in Psalm 119, as David is thinking about all of this longest psalm in the Bible, and it's all about the Word of God, the Scriptures, and as David is reflecting on the benefit and the value and the beauty of the Word of God, the Hebrew word dabar, as he's reflecting on the Word of God, he says, forever, O Lord, your Word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Who wrote the Old Testament? Well, that's a good question. We know Moses wrote the Pentateuch. That's what penta means, five, the first five books of the Bible. But we don't know who wrote the book of Job. And we don't know uh, who wrote some of the texts, but we know David wrote many of the Psalms. Who wrote the book of Jeremiah? Anybody remember Jeremiah's buddy? What was his name, the scribe? His name was Baruch. He wrote the book of Jeremiah. But we have these marvelous 39 books of the Old Testament, and they are composed over a period of about a thousand years by 40 different authors telling this unique story of the history of redemption. And then Jesus breaks onto the scene, and after His life, death, and resurrection, suddenly there emerges the Scriptures we call the New Testament. Who wrote the New Testament? Well, there were these guys, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, maybe 
30 years, if Christ rose in around 36 A.D., maybe by uh, the year 50 or 40 or 60, we're not exactly sure what, they penned the history, the life record and ministry of Jesus Christ with a deep theological conviction about Him as they wrote. And these are called the four, what? The Gospels. But decades earlier, before the Gospels were even written, there was a Jewish scholar named Saul of Tarsus. Does anybody know who he is? This was the great student of Gamaliel who is encountered by Jesus Christ and is converted. And he comes to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And he becomes the Apostle Paul. And you know that he had a passion for the church. And so he wrote letters to the church, helping them solve their problems, helping them to understand what the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus really meant in their life and how to conduct themselves as God's people of faith in this world. So those are the epistles of Paul. But then there's Peter and Jude and James and John again who wrote other epistles. And all together these books come into the New Testament. How are we to understand it? We appreciate each part of the Bible, but we also appreciate it as a whole. Because the Scriptures themselves attest to themselves as authoritative for us. And one of my favorite teachers, a man named Edmund Clowney, he says this. I like this quote. He says, the Bible is like one big play or a dramatic production carried out on many stages with many varied characters with all kinds of plots and plot development, including a magnificent beginning and a grand finale. But together it is all the Word of the Lord. And it is about the Lord. Well, the Bible is God's written self-revelation. Ed Clowney says this. He says to us, you know, you cannot know the Lord of the Word. Who is the Lord of the Word? Jesus. He says, you cannot know the Lord of the Word without knowing the Word of the Lord. I think that is true. We learn much about God through creation, what we call general revelation, but it is necessary for us to receive the special revealed self-revelation of God through Jesus Christ and its record and its explanation to us in the sacred scriptures. And the Old Testament points forward to Jesus and the New Testament explains Jesus and unpacks what it means to us to have life in Him. So if someone says to you, what is the Bible? That's the Bible. Now, is it reliable? Can you trust it? Some of the men on the street that we saw in our little interview said, well, it's a storybook full of fairy tales. What do you think? What do you think? Why do we in this church trust this amazing book? It's fascinating. Tim Keller's great apologetic work called The Reason for God. It's got a subtitle. And the subtitle is very telling. It's called The Reason for God in the Age of Skepticism. And I think that is true. 
We live in a most skeptical world that has no interest or little interest in the things of God. Why do we believe that the Bible speaks with authority? And the answer is because of the author. The Bible has authority because God is its author. Wait, 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 wait just a minute. Pastor John, didn't you just get done telling me we don't know who wrote the book of Job? We don't know who the author uh, of some of the ancient texts is? I did say that we are not certain as to the identity of every one of the human authors. However, we do know that behind all of those authors was the Spirit of God breathing out the Word of God and governing those original autographs, they're called. The original documents were governed by the Holy Spirit. Where do we learn that? You know, the verse that Jamal read for us earlier from uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. Here it comes. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness. Did you catch that phrase in English? It's breathed out by God. It's the Greek word Theopneustos. That sounds good, doesn't it? Theos, God. Pneustos, breath and spirit. And we believe that the Holy Spirit worked in and through those men in those times and circumstances to give us the Bible. And therefore, it doesn't wear out, it doesn't grow old. David says, forever! O oh Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heaven, in the heavens. And Peter, Peter quotes from the Old Testament as he's describing the Bible, and he says in 1 Peter 1, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Do you believe this? We live in an age of skepticism. There are many people where you live and where you work and where you play that do not believe this. And I would remind you that in the record of the Bible, Satan's first assault against God was to do what? Do you remember back in Genesis 3? We read in verse 1, and I like how it is in the King James Version, now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Hath God said, You shall not eat from any tree, every tree in the garden? First words out of his mouth. Hath God said? Why do you think that was the devil's first assault against God. Well, you know the answer. He does not want us to trust in the reliability of the Word of God. And over the centuries, his tactics have not changed. Back in the garden wreaks all kinds of havoc. 
And then in Israel, as Israel turns away from the word of the Lord, and then through the centuries, as his church has many times veered off one side of the road or off the other, and has gotten lost, turned away from the word of the Lord. Because Satan says to himself, here, here he is in therapy, you know, he's trying to figure out, you know, why do I do what I do? And he just says, if I can just get them to ignore, despise, reject, turn away from God's word, I'll have it made, right? I'll have it made. And in many places, he has it made. It was disturbing in the video that we watched. It was disturbing to read the George Barna survey that said only 43% of Christians, only 43% of Christians surveyed believe that the Bible is true and accurate in all that it says. So how do we, how do we speak to our skeptical world? You know, I've already told you, the reason the Bible has authority is because of its author. And, and I, I just have to tell you, God's Word does not need this puny mind to try and defend His Word, okay? So the last thing that I want to do is to pretend before you that God needs me to defend His Word to the skeptics out there. That would be foolish. And in fact, there's even something perverse, isn't there, about unbelieving minds saying, well, I think you need to persuade me and let me stand in judgment over God's Word. Isn't there something kind of perverse about that? Would Eve have said that? That's exactly what Satan was calling Eve to do, to stand in judgment over God's Word. So, so, there's something perverse about that, but let me indulge me just for a moment and think with me about all the things that corroborate why we trust in the reliability of the Scriptures. For example, the prophecies. We could spend weeks on this, but dozens and dozens, even hundreds of prophecies that were given in the Old Testament that came to pass. And even if you come to church just once a year on Christmas Eve to North Shore Community Church, what are you going to hear? Oh, a child is going to stand up here and read from the book of Micah. That the Messiah will be born where? Micah writes, hundreds of years before Jesus, the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. And lo and behold, where is Jesus born? In Bethlehem. Zechariah tells us that Jesus will enter triumphantly into Jerusalem, humbly on, on the back of a donkey. And what do we read of that great Palm Sunday event? Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. We understand that the Messiah will be betrayed by one of his own followers. And Judas, that night, goes out. And what does he do? Old Testament says he's going to be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. And how much money does Judas get? 30 pieces of silver for the betrayal of Jesus. That he, he the Messiah, will be despised and rejected of men, and John tells us Jesus came to His own, and His own did not receive Him. The Bible says that He will be like the sheep led to slaughter, and John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and Christ is murdered, the innocent for the guilty. 
And yet, this messianic figure, not one of his bones will see decay. And on the third day, Jesus comes triumphant out of the tombs, alive. Oh, we could go on and on, but my friends, the the prophecies stand. They stand the test of time. But what about all those people that read the Da Vinci Code? Right? Remember that book? What a great beach novel it is. It's riveting. Terrible theology, inaccurate in what it says about the Bible, but, but Dan Brown's a pretty good beach novelist. And, and they allege that the New Testament was compiled centuries after Jesus by power-hungry priests who wanted to control the masses. What do you say to them? About two years ago, we had a man, a great scholar of the of the ancient manuscripts named Jay Smith stand in this pulpit. And Jay Smith stood here, and I, I am in awe of just his knowledge of the ancient documents. And he said, let me tell you why we should believe that the New Testament, probably all of it, was written before 70 A.D. or even before 64 A.D. He'll says, he says, I'll tell you why. What happened in 70 A.D.? Do you know? The fall of Jerusalem cataclysmic event for all Jews and for the Christians that were there. What happened in A.D. 64? That was the great fire of Rome that led to the terrible persecution of the Christians. And, and, and um, J. Smith, he stood here and he said, now just think about it. These cataclysmic events are not mentioned in any of the 27 New Testament books. He says, therefore, isn't it obvious they were written before that time? And he says the martyrdom of James, Jesus' brother James, not John's brother James who was killed in Acts 12, but there is no mention of the martyrdom of the great brother of Jesus, James, who, pres- who presided at the Council of Jerusalem. It's not mentioned at all, certainly not in the book of Acts. That's Josephus tells us that was the year 62. And tradition says Paul martyred in 64 and Peter in 65. Not mentioned in any of the books, the loss of these great leaders. So J. Smith, I'm just in awe. He, he knows so much. And he says, it's clear to me, he says, then that these books were authored prior to that time. And then he said something that just blew me away. Bear with me on this. He said that if you study the church fathers... You know, you hear names like Polycarp and Irenaeus, right? Great names of the church fathers. He says, you study them, you find that church fathers all over the ancient world actually quote the New Testament. Not a little bit. They find 32,000 quotes from the New Testament in the church fathers in those first few centuries, such that one Englishman, David Dalrymple, he put together all the quotes, and he was able to put together the entire New Testament from the quotes of the church fathers scattered around the ancient world, all but just 11 verses here and there of the New Testament. And I just was so thankful for Jay Smith. He says, it's clear that these documents were there early and accurate. So is the Bible reliable? I believe it is, my friends. 
because God is its author, and history corroborates its accuracy. But the word rely is a tricky word. Do you rely on the Bible? The wise man, we sang that song with the children, the wise man hears God's Word and puts it into practice. The foolish man also hears God's Word, but does not put it into practice. And the rains came down, the floods came up, and the house on the sand went splat. Do you rely on the Word of God? What does it mean to rely? You say, well, I need to be convinced. Well, you know, of the past dozen years, I've taken a lot of airplane flights. So have you. Let me ask you, when you get on the airplane, do you do a pre-flight check of the engines? Do you go test the, the, the purity of the jet fuel that's being pumped into the plane? Do you do an interview with the pilot? Let, let's talk to the air traffic controller who's going to bring us from, you know, 37,000 feet down to 10 feet, and let's make sure that he's got plenty of caffeine inside of him before he does that. You don't. <laughs> you climb into a hollow aluminum tube, and you go 500 miles an hour at 37,000 feet in the air, and you just rely that they're going to bring you down onto that postage stamp safely. And I'm pleased to report that I've had 100% success relying on those who fly me. Whether or not you rely on the Bible depends on your view of God. It depends on your view of God. Do you believe that our God, the living and true God who has revealed Himself, tells the truth? God tells the truth. He speaks the truth. And if you trust Him, you will trust His Word. Why? Because His Word is firmly fixed. Forever, O Lord, Your Word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Now, point three, what happens when we trust the Bible? What happens when we do get on the plane, climb into that aluminum tube by analogy, when you begin to rely on what God has said? Well, first of all, you are pointed to Jesus Christ. From the Old Testament across the pages to the New Testament back, the person that counts is actually who David exalts in in Psalm 119, verse 89. Forever, O Lord. This is the word of the Lord, but the word of the Lord is about the Lord of the word. It's about Him. And so, what did Jesus say to the Pharisees in John 5, verse 39? Do you know that, that sparring moment? Jesus said, you diligently study the Scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the Scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. If you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote about me. And so here's a warning to us, church. You can go to 10,000 Bible studies. But if in those Bible studies you are not led to Jesus, 
you are not gripped by Jesus, you do not come to know Jesus, then you experience the great tragedy that the Pharisees experience. Jesus says, the words I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. And I know you remember that day after the resurrection of Jesus as he walks on the road to Emmaus with his friend Cleopas. And, and he, it says, Cleopas says, didn't my heart burn inside me as he spoke? And what did Jesus speak? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You see, this book is not like reading Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I hope you read it. It's a good book, good guidelines. The, but you know, the, the first person in the video, he said, the Bible is a guidebook. Slow down. It is not like reading Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. The Bible is to lead you, to point you to Jesus Christ to engage in the Lord, the risen Lord, and to know Him and to love Him. It is not merely a guidebook. The church has failed, especially we in the Bible-believing church when we just treat it like a, 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 an owner's manual or a rule book. It points you to Christ. But then secondly, as you encounter Christ, you are made wise unto salvation. And again, Jamal read that for us earlier in the service from 2 Timothy 3. He says, how from childhood you learned the sacred scriptures which make you wise unto salvation. And the scriptures even mercifully record for us the Philippian jailer, remember, who cries out, what must I do to be saved? And do you remember the answer written in scripture for us? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. What if I'm not smart enough? What if I never went to seminary? We saw that earlier as we read from the Confession of Faith. You can be learned and highly educated. You can be unlearned. It doesn't matter. Some of the finest Christians I know are schizophrenic and delusional in their earthly life, but they love Jesus Christ. They become wise unto salvation through the sacred scriptures. And then thirdly, as you come to Christ, as you find new life in Him, as you take His Word into your heart and mind and you live in relationship with Him, David says, he says, Psalm 19, 11, Your word I have hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. And Jesus prayed to the Father in John 17, 17. He said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And we experience in our own life times of personal struggle. And we are depressed and discouraged. We cry out to Jesus. And what happens? Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. You know Jeremiah, the weeping prophet? What a miserable Eeyore of a person he was. But in Jeremiah 15, 16, this verse means so much to me. Jeremiah says, Your words were found, and I ate them. 
and they became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. And joy comes again into his life. And you have anxiety, and you have fear. And David tells us in Psalm 119, he says, Great peace have those who love thy law, because they know the Prince of Peace, and they know his righteous ways. Oh, my friends, maybe you're here, you say, my faith, my faith is like one of these candles almost out of fuel. It's flickering. My faith is almost gone. Paul tells us, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let the promises of Christ invade your heart and mind over and over again. Oh, my friends, are you a skeptic? Do you know someone who is a product of the age of skepticism? I hope I've helped you just a little bit today to understand what is going on as we get this book, but I warn you something. I warn you, John Frame says this. Listen to this. He says, those who do not want to eat before they understand the entire process by which food arrives at their table, will starve to death, right? If you have to understand every truck, you know, every farmer, every fertilizer, if you have to understand every process about the food before you will eat it, you will starve to death. And those who do not want to believe the Word of God before they see all their problems resolved will die of spiritual starvation. So believe. Just let the word of the Lord speak to your heart and introduce you to the Lord of the word. Oh, my friends, I've written a couple of articles that have been published, a little book here and there. Occasionally, someone comes to me and they say, oh, John Yenchko, I read your book. It makes me feel good. You know, God wrote a book. God wrote only one book. And one day you're going to meet Him. And I want you to say to Him, I read your book and I loved it. And it was life to me because I came to know you. I came to know your Son. I experienced the Holy Spirit because of your book. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you that you are a God who reveals himself. We also honestly confess that we are, in some measure, products of our age of skepticism. We ask you to forgive us. Even as we come to the Lord's table now, come, oh, Lord, and convict us of our need for you and your self-revelation in your great word. We love you, Lord. We love that you speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen.